0: Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And
1: I'm Sarah Jacobs.
0: Sarah, we're recording on Monday, March 8th, and so I want to wish you a happy International Women's Day.
1: Oh why, well, thank you very much, Alan. Happy International Women's Day to you.
0: Thank you. Uh Jeremy, <laughs> who runs our social media account for Photo Shelters, put together a really nice list, little shout-out list, and has been encouraging some of our followers to also uh, tag different female photographers out there. It's, it's going to be a nice list. So if you're not following us on Twitter, we're at Photo Shelter. Check it out. Check Honestly, it out. I w-
1: I was getting notifications from being on included on the Twitter list all day, and it just like brought me so much joy. And it was all of these female photographers just like basically giving each other virtual high fives. It was yeah. it was a nice nice thing to be a part of. Very
0: cool. Very cool. One of the more interesting things that I saw in the news this past week was this image. Of what's been called a flying ship and the phenomenon called the superior mirage behind it. Uh, the New York Times is a great article, which we'll link to on our, our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But a ton of news outlets have picked it up. And honestly, I looked at the photo uh, a dozen times and I still can't believe this optical illusion that was captured by a guy named David Morris. And it shows a, a, a big freighter floating in the air. Um and apparently it's caused by temp- temperature differences between the sea and the air which causes air density changes and forces light to bend in different ways. But you know looking at this it still looks crazy to me. I can't believe that it that you could capture it on on a camera.
1: Yeah, the New York Times explained pretty much in detail the science behind why it looks as though it's floating. But I just, I still am just like, oh, this is an incredible photo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. And, you know, unlike the ambiguity over, you know, is it a black dra- a blue dress or a, or, a, or a gold dress, there's no way to interpret this as anything but a levitating ship.
1: <laughs> right. It just, <laughs> exactly. It looks like a freight ship floating in the sky.
0: There was an article in The Guardian. Uh, that pointed out, uh, quote, one potential clue that the site is a mirage is any lack of detail below the vessel's waterline. For example, a mirage of a hovering yacht lack the lower hull and keel. So in that sense, I guess it's accurate, but it still kind of blows my mind. I love the fact that this guy, David Morris, in the New York Times uh, interview said, uh, you know, he came across this thing. It's not super common in the area that he lives. It's much more common in the Arctic, apparently, because of the temperature gradients. Uh, but he said he hadn't paid attention for too long to the levitating ship. Instead, he marveled at the landscape around him as he resumed his walk. He said, I told myself how lucky we are to live in this part of the world. <laughs>
1: I, can't, yeah. I can't wrap
0: my mind around, you know, taking a walk, seeing a floating ship, taking a photo <laughs> of me I'm like, oh, well. What a wonderful place we live in. And then <laughs> moving on, but such is his attitude in uh, Ireland. Good for you, Mr. Morris.
1: Uh, so another Irish photographer captured an incredible image this week. They are just serving them up, um, which is pretty funny. Photographer James Crombie took a video and photo of a murmuration of starlings. Now, that is a flock of the bird starling, a phrase I had not heard prior to this week, um, over Lake Loch Enel in Ireland for the Irish Times. Um, basically, the birds look like one giant bird, and it is just a phenomenal, beautiful image of these birds over this pristine uh, water. And he, Crombie went out to this lake over 50 times over the course of several months to try to get this exact shot to happen. And he finally did. And it just, it looks so stunning. It ran on the cover of the Irish Times. Um, and Crombie uh, is a pro. He, he has recently been awarded Press Photographer of the Year at the Press Photographers Association of Ireland. And he usually shoots sports.
0: Uh, a couple observations. Number one, uh, as you know, I've been a judge for the Audubon uh, Bird Photography Awards for several years, and every mm-hmm. year we see a number of murmuration photos because, as you can suspect, they're 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 popular things to photograph. This is an exceptional photo of a murmuration mm-hmm. <laughs> because of that shape and because of the time of day and you know all the compositional elements, and I dare say you my first inclination would be like, we better check the raw file on this because this looks like it's Photoshopped. But the fact that his friend was there taking video at the same time and yes. you can actually see it take this shape, uh, you know, yeah. kind of invalidates any doubt that you have. The other thing I will say, as someone who goes out and takes bird photos and as someone who goes out and take, takes uh, astro photographs, 50 times is a lot in terms yeah. of planning, hiking out there, Hanging out there for hours, like 50 times, like you think, ah, what's the big deal? 50 times, like that is hundreds (laughs) of hours of dedication to this craft. And so, good for him to nail this shot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned the video taken by his friend, and it really is mesmerizing to watch. And then you really can see the murmuration take shape of that bird, and it's just like, whoa. That is that is gorgeous.
0: The article that uh, we're referencing was on Petapixel, and in that article, they also had uh, the photo that that won him his award for press photographer of the year. Um, it's a great photo of a fan watching a semifinal final uh, of footy match uh, in Ireland, standing on a ladder looking over a cinder block wall, uh, making <laughs> like a victory gesture. It's it's a great great photo. So. Very cool to see him doing a lot of diverse things and nailing the photo every single time.
1: Totally. He's got good range. California-based photographer Chanel Stone has a beautiful body of work that was recently highlighted um, on NPR, exploring urban nature within predominantly black neighborhoods in the cities of Brooklyn, Los Angeles, and her own hometown of Oakland, California. Her series Natura Negra, meaning black nature, is shot in black and white and it depicts everything from side yards of apartment complexes to overgrown plants around concrete, um, small patches of landscaped gardens surrounded by sidewalk and potted plants on balconies. And in many of the images, she is herself in the image, so she's doing self-portrait work, um, which is what really drew me to this series. I'm a sucker for self-portraits. I think it's an amazing way to explore yourself and photography. Um, She told NPR of the work, quote, for many black people, rural nature, places like national parks aren't very accessible. Sometimes it's the cost, but more often the issue is societal. As black people, it feels like these rural spaces aren't for us. I want to turn that idea on its head, end quote. Um, So the work is really complex. Chanel is exploring ideas around gentrification and also around the genre of of just landscape and nature photography itself kind of expanding what it can be what did you think of the work alan
0: i i loved it and you know she's shooting in black and white which of course when you think of nature you always think of of green and lush and saturation and so that choice to me was like oh wow and so the npr uh, interview was, was great, and, so, uh, and then I started searching a little bit more, and I found a really neat interview uh, that she had with MOAD, which is the Museum of the African Diaspora, um, and the interviewer asked her a lot about these things, and you know she's really thought about why she's shooting in black and white. You know, One of the things she said was she transferred to uh, CCA in California, the California College of the Arts, and uh, she said she had to retake a medium format class uh, which also mandated black and white darkroom work. And oh, while she was in there, she said, and I fell in love with it again, m- meaning black and white. I thought it was limiting, but I really love the control with it. Black and white has a timeless feel to it. It might sound cliche, but it's true. And she says, I, I, I thought it also spoke uh, to the traditional canon of photography, which of course, you know, uh, photography started in black and white and so many of the greats did their work in Black and White, Walker, Evans, Ansel Adams, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's really cool to see that she had a, a very intellectual approach to it as well. Um, mm-hmm. And in regards to putting her in the center of the frame, she said, the reason why I'm in the middle of the frame is because I want, wanted the viewer to have to meet the presence of a black figure in the frame. So there's a lot of intention around her work. It's not just her taking a walk and being like, wow, oh, look, there's a plant. I want to take a photo. <laughs> um, and I just thought the tonality in the images, uh, I love what she's trying to do in terms of like capturing nature in urban spaces because uh, th- that is a real phenomenon. A lot of people live in cities, they can't get out. And, and, and of course, to her point, there's some institutional and cultural things that prevent certain minorities from enjoying nature in the way that other people do. Uh, mm-hmm. These images I just thought were fantastic.
1: Absolutely. She also talked in the interview about how social media was sort of an integral part to exploring her self-portraiture, she was born in 1992, and it it made me think about my own progression in self-portraiture and that I've done a lot of landscape um, self-portraiture. Um, so in some ways, similar to what she's doing, but kind of like the flip side of that. And it's it it made me rethink about some of my work and why I f- why as a white woman do I feel comfortable, you know, being out in the desert and being able to take pictures out there mm. um, it's really it's really thought provoking I, I really, really enjoyed this
0: did did it make you want to shoot black and white at all <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i'm I'm <laughs> obsessive about color. I'm really obsessive about color, but I think it will make me rethink about you know the 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 nature that I do see in New York City, um, which is obviously somewhat limited, right
0: yeah, yeah. I have a friend uh, named Caleb Bennett. He's a freelance graphic designer for the New York Times Magazine and Wired and Condé Nast uh, publications. And he's been living out here in Hawaii for uh, most of the pandemic. And he'll go and take walks and photograph, you know, different plants on his his walks. And sometimes they're converted to black and white as well. And I, I gotta be honest, like seeing his photos and seeing Chanel's photos, I'm a little jealous that people can see... In black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, also post-process it in a way that just seems so compelling and inviting to me. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll try a couple frames of yeah. black and white and see how it goes. <laughs> I was perusing Instagram stories and my, my buddy, who's a, a, a video producer here in Honolulu, uh, reposted something from Titleist, the golf manufacturer. And uh, they had hired a drone, a dronist, a drone photographer, a drone videographer, to follow a golf ball in flight. <laughs> and I was like, what? So the Titleist produces BTS video and I watched it and I just couldn't believe. I mean, it really looks like it's computer generated, but the, the drone does. flyer is just, you know, it's, it's this industrial drone that just zips uh, on the ball. And I did a little bit more uh, investigation And the dronist is this guy, Johnny FPV, who I've written about before. Johnny FPV is well known in the FPV world.
1: What does FPV stand for?
0: FPV stands for first person view flying. And again, Ah. it's where you're wearing those goggles and you can see what's going on. It's used a lot for drone racing, um, but it's being used more and more for sort of creative uh, cinematography. And in this case, he just nailed it. I wrote an article about Johnny FPV a few years ago because he had gone to Africa and he drones rhinos, uh, rare white rhinos. And it was incredible footage, but a lot of wildlife people were like, you're giving them anxiety. You shouldn't be flying something so close to them.
1: Mm -hmm. And they make a kind of a scary noise.
0: Yeah. Yeah that high buzzing pitch noise. Uh, Mm
1: -hmm. You know, for
0: some animals, it's not a problem. And for other animals, it's really, really stress inducing. And it was a weird situation where he was trying to, uh, you know, bring a voice to these rhinos. um, But at the same time, he was negatively affecting them. And -hmm. it took him a few days to come around. But he finally said, OK, I I didn't do this responsibly. So, you know, he's still a young guy, as far as I recall. I think he's like early 20s still because he got into FPV uh, flying when he was in his teens. Um, so I think he's becoming hopefully a much more mature and responsible dronist. Um, but the footage is in, just incredible.
1: You mentioned it kind of looks CGI-ish. And yeah. that's that was my thought exactly was I was like, why did they do all this work when they could have just animated a ball?
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it's a valid, it's a valid, uh, you know, c- comment there of if you could just take regular drone footage and insert the ball, then why go through all the trouble to you know, try to synchronize the ball with the, with the drone? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I just think that when you know that it's real, it's, it just ends up being really badass. to <laughs> yeah, try to accomplish true. that.
1: True, I have to say I watched the full video and it's like a set of, I don't know, probably like 12 to 15 people. There was not one woman on that set, mm. not one, not one. And yeah. I was like, mm. That. And
0: no masks either. Oh
1: yeah, no masks. <laughs> when was this filmed?
0: <laughs> it was definitely filmed in quarantine, but you know, I, I have to say uh, th- there have been no known cases of outdoor transmission, especially when you're on a golf course that has, you know, wind going. So I'll give them a little slack on there, but uh, <laughs> let's just celebrate the good drone photography
1: for the time being. Okay, sure,
0: that's <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, as we come to the close of the show today, we wanted to recap some stories that we talked about in old episodes and and not ones from you know a year ago, things from like last week or the week before, first of all, we had a big, long talk about the zeally daguerreotypes, yep, and uh, you know we mentioned that lawsuit over the ownership of those daguerreotypes at Harvard, and we said that uh the lawsuit was still sort of pending there was a a a trial in october um And uh, a woman named Tamara Lanier of Norwich, Connecticut, said uh, that Renta and Delia, who were two of the slaves depicted in the Zeely Daguerreotypes, were her ancestors, and she wanted to take possession of it. And the judge basically said, uh, you know, with the current laws, uh, from a legal perspective, not a moral perspective, from a legal perspective, the person who takes the photo owns the photo. Um, And Harvard has possession of the photos, and so he dismissed the uh, case. So unfortunately, mm. a blow for uh, Tamara Lanier. But I will say the amount of publicity that the story generated, I think, has a lot of people reconsidering um, what reparations mean,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: especially in the context of, of you know photos uh, of of the enslaved. So not the yeah. best outcome, but but not a terrible uh, outcome uh, when all things are considered.
1: Yeah, I th- I don't know that we specifically said this um, on our show. I mean, I I understand that there should not be a legal like, if the judge were to do this, that that would be crazy for all photographers. You right. know what for I mean? A in legal terms of copyright. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I really do think that it is Harvard's responsibility to um, properly hand over ownership to this woman.
0: They did allude in the article about Harvard. And, and you know maybe it's just a PR play, but they they did sort of allude that Harvard was considering how they should treat these sort of artifacts um, mm. where the provenance was through some sort of slavery event. Um, so hopefully they'll they'll kind of follow up on that, but time will tell.
1: You had brought up the Tom Cruise deep fakes that were on TikTok. And then you found an article where the creator of those deep fakes said, is telling everyone, don't worry. Don't worry too much. This takes a lot of work. <laughs> now, I read that article. I thought, hmm, I'm still going to be worried, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. So the creator found a, a Tom Cruise impersonator who did the voice and also had the mannerisms. His face is decently close, but clearly not close enough to fool anyone. Uh, so they used a combination of, of deep fakes as well as VFX techniques. The guy, the guy who did it is a Belgium VFX specialist named Chris Oom, um, or Umi. Um, and, you know, I, I have to agree with you. Even though he's saying it's, it's not a one-click process now, uh, it'll get pretty close in the future. And so we have to find yeah. ways to detect uh, the deceptions in, in the future.
1: Yeah, and I just think like you know somebody evil enough that wants to that has the money and the time to to do this, will do it. So yeah. just yeah, <laughs> we got to be careful.
0: We also mentioned the website MyHeritage that was using AI technology to animate old photos, uh, and I came across. <laughs> A post by the musician John Mayer, who I'm actually a big fan of. I think he's a great musician and he's just a funny social media personality. But over on TikTok, he created a spoof where he was basically saying, oh, my God, it animated, you know, this incredible photo of my grandfather. And it looks exactly like me, but it's it's actually just John filming himself in black and white doing one of those weird head swivels. Uh, Very funny. Good reason to follow him on TikTok.
1: I love it. He, he actually just signed up for TikTok like this weekend and he popped up in my For You page, of course, because TikTok knows who I am on <sighs> deep on the inside. So they were like, serving me up, John Mayer. And yeah, definitely give him a follow if you're on TikTok.
0: Well, he's already been prolific, even though he's only been on for a week. I know. Tons exactly. of it. Of, it's like he has nothing else to do when he's not well, touring. T-
1: I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, none of us have anything to do. <laughs> and finally we finally got on dispo yeah we got on dispo uh dispo is this new hot app that all the kids are into where you take a photo and it doesn't show up in your camera roll until the next day i am not i'm not sold on this i'm not i'm still not sold on this but we created a shared public photo shelter album if you want to look us up and take some photos
1: yeah, I'm Sarah. I'm at Sarah Jake on Dispo. And then you can find both Alan and I at Photo Shelter.
0: Yeah, the public album is called PS Vision Slightly Blurred. And I'm Alan 3A-L-L-E-N 3. So let's create some shared albums and see if it lasts more than a week.
1: Yeah, okay. I'm into it. <laughs> let's think of the theme and, uh, and do it.
0: Cool. Tweet it at me. And hey, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode. Hit that subscribe button. Leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at us at PhotoShelter. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.